Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google certificates. Faster my crazy day, my packed commute, all those unread emails in my inbox. But I'm getting stronger, faster, and pushing myself further every day. I don't care if I'm not like everyone else. This punching bag is the best way to end my day. <laughs> Fearless is knowing yoga isn't your style. That's the power of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Federal Employee Program. Learn more about our healthy benefits at fepblue.org slash get more. Hi, and welcome to our podcast, The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with the bipartisan firm Purple Strategies. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with the firm Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the latest polls driving the news in politics, tech, entertainment, and pop culture. So we're so excited to have Molly Murphy with us today. She is a partner at the Democratic firm Anzalone List Grove Research. So Molly, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So Molly, tell us a little bit about your, tell us about Anzalone List Grove and a little bit about your, what you do there and how you got into polling. Sure, absolutely. So yeah, Anzalone List Grove Research is a democratic uh, political polling firm. Uh, we do work mainly for political candidates uh, and left-leaning and progressive issue organizations. So we're doing work at the presidential level this cycle on behalf of the Clinton campaign. We do work for campaigns with the party committees and individual campaigns themselves. Uh, but a lot of the work we do and a lot of the work I do actually is with issue organizations. Uh, sometimes they are sort of very tied to the, the political cycle, uh, you know, very involved in issues like reproductive freedom, women's health, uh, income inequality, issues you hear a lot of political campaigns talk about, uh, but also a lot of sort of niche issues that might be a little bit more in the weeds or feel a little bit more specific than what you hear political campaigns talk about. Uh, so anything from sort of the role of government or the relationship between state and local governments, uh, you know, very specific policy issues as it pertain pertains to gun issues or, you know, environmental issues that are not necessarily, you know, a, a top tier issue you're going to hear a candidate talking about, but have very specific policy implications for that organization. Um, I myself got into polling uh, 10 years ago, I was coming out of college. I had always been very interested in politics. I uh, had been very involved in campaigns throughout high school and college. Uh, and I knew when I was looking for a job that I wanted to do something that allowed me to stay in politics and make it not just a passion, but a career. Uh, but I was very interested in figuring out how campaigns developed their strategy in the first place. Uh, and I knew I wanted to do more of that and a little bit less of executing the strategy uh, once it was sort of already developed. Um, so as I was looking for jobs, I met with someone who was actually working at a Democratic polling firm, uh, and she told me more about what they did. And I'll be honest, uh, before that, I knew that campaigns used pollsters, and I knew that 
you know, they measured the head to head or that they looked at issues and how voters reacted to them. But I really had no idea how instrumental polling was in helping organizations and campaigns develop their message and develop their strategy. And so shortly after that conversation, I looked very closely at getting into polling, uh, started as an intern, actually, uh, and have been in the field ever since. And, and now I'm a partner at a, a different firm. Molly, our career paths sound identical. I had this, this is Kristen, I had this exact same story where I came out of college, I knew what polling was vaguely. In my case, it was uh, pretty uh, dumber reasons because I watched The West Wing. So that's how I sort of knew what polling was. Uh, but yeah, it got, got kind of involved fresh out of college. So what, in the last 10 years then, being somebody who is simultaneously younger in the field, but also deeply experienced in the field, what are the big changes in how you've done your job over the last 10 years? Um, the tools, you've used, the types of questions you've asked, how have you watched things evolve over the last decade of your career? Well, I think perhaps the two biggest and sort of easiest answers to this question that I deal with on a very daily basis, uh, first, when it comes to telephone polling, uh, the rise and reliance on cell phones, and, and that being constantly a hovering question of, you know, we've reached a point in polling, and we've reached that point a few years ago where it is absolutely critical that every poll you do when you're trying to collect a representative sample of any population, but particularly a general electorate or an adult population, includes a significant portion of cell phone interviews. Um, but as you know, it is also very expensive to dial cell phones and figuring out exactly what the right number of cell phone interviews uh, is, is an ongoing challenge. And so that is something that you know, impacts me on a, a daily basis, frankly, both with clients and campaigns asking the question uh, and then also figuring out what that best answer is. And so we're at a point in our firm where we're nearly nearly half of all of our you know general election polls are dialed on cell phones to account for that. Uh, and then the second piece is the, you know, the utility and the, the tools that you're able to do online to enhance the work that you do. I mean, when I first started, we were doing almost no online surveys. And if we were, it was for very, very specific audiences like, uh, you know, a membership group where the client had a long list, uh, you know, they had a list of their members and we knew we could reach them that way. And now it's viable to do very quality, very representative work, uh, looking at messaging, looking at issues online, either through online surveys or online focus groups. And so integrating that and figuring out when a client comes to you with a question, what type of research we can use. We now just have so many more options than when I started just 10 years ago. So give us an example of something uh, fun or interesting you've worked on, something public or something you can allude to and describe even if it's not completely public. Sure, absolutely. Um, so one one recent bit of work that I did that is is among my favorites because it was just so thoroughly explored through research. And then once it was executed, uh, it was incredibly successful, was a campaign in the Deep South, uh, in a Deep South state, uh, looking at LGBT rights. Uh, and the client came to us and they said, okay, well, we want to have a conversation in the South about, you know, how the LGBT community here is treated about, you know, what types of protections they have or don't have and sort of begin to see movement in the Deep South that we've seen everywhere else in the country on these issues. 
uh, but they weren't necessarily looking at a vote or, you know, a piece of policy that they were trying to, you know, sort of work up to. They were much more interested in having a more open conversation with the public. And so we started out with focus groups in the Deep South, talking to, you know, very regular everyday people about the LGBT community. What were the stereotypes that existed? What were their experiences in their own communities? Did they know gays, lesbians, transgender individuals? And, and what were their perceptions there? And our goal wasn't to try to get them to vote for, you know, marriage equality or to, you know, speak up to, you know, stereotypes. Our goal was really to get them to sort of open up and expand and have a dialogue about these issues in a way that demonstrated more compassion. So we started with focus groups. We did a survey where we took what we learned in those focus groups. And one thing that we really learned, and this is true of any issue work you're doing, is, you know, it's very hard to sort of go in and ask someone, okay, change your mind on this issue. Uh, it's much more effective to understand how people approach the way they decide where they are on an issue and then try to establish a connection between what you're working on, where you're trying to get them to go, and how they already feel. I mean, oftentimes I say it's much more effective to get to meet voters where they are than to try to get them to come to you. And so what we did in the focus groups was try to understand where people were on this issue. Where were they conflicted or where did they feel uncomfortable? And how could we have a conversation that allayed some of those concerns and allowed them to see that they actually were more open to this conversation than maybe they originally would have felt. Um, so we did polling, we tested some messaging, and we developed uh, with this client uh, some creative, some TV ads. Uh, and then we used online, an online survey to actually test the ads and say, okay, what do voters like about what they're seeing here? What makes them uncomfortable? How is, you know, how do they react to seeing someone's mother, you know, the mother of a gay individual talk about this issue compared to hearing from that person themselves. And what, you know, looking at the data in that, as well as understanding the qualitative, uh, I think allowed us to really put together a very nice, uh, really beautiful uh, couple of ads. We ran those ads and then used polling again after those ads ran to look at a range of different measures on these issues to see if actually when people saw those ads, did it allow them to think about these issues differently? Uh, and we saw, in fact, that there was a lot of movement. It was it was incredibly successful and, and really moving. So LGBT rights is just one of many issues that are, you know, they're really controversial. People can feel very emotionally about them. Um, and when I think about the challenges facing pollsters doing issues polling, What's hard is that for campaign polling, sometimes it's pretty straightforward, right? You ask people a ballot test. You ask people fave unfaves. For issue questions, it's it's a lot more of an art, I feel like, because you've got to come up with question wording that really gets at the heart of, of how people think about an issue, considering that for many of them, they may not have thought deeply about an issue before at all. How do you tackle that? You know, when you have a client that has an issue uh, that's the sort of thing that's maybe a really niche issue, maybe it's not something that's in the headlines, but nonetheless, you have a client that wants to study voter attitudes on something where a lot of voters don't, may not have attitudes at all at this point. I mean, how do you tackle those kinds of challenges? It, it, that is constantly, constantly a struggle in the challenge of, uh, of doing some of this issue work. And, and sometimes I, I find that going into an issue where voters don't have a lot of preconceived notions, 
while there are challenges in that, uh, there are also such huge opportunities. You know, it's, it's obviously much more difficult to jump into a conversation about, you know, marriage equality or immigration, uh, you know, climate change, things of that nature that are so part of the debate that people are, are sort of come into it with a, an established set of expectations or assumptions about the issue. And so I think sometimes you can have a, a more difficult time moving people off of those assumptions than sort of creating their perception of an issue. Um, but it, it is challenging. And I think a lot of times you have to start uh, not with a preordained script of, okay, let's, let's figure out what the messages are and just take them to people. Uh, we recently did a, a big project for a client uh, that was focused on what is called preemption. Uh, and that is a term that is used for when a state government or when the federal government comes in and passes a law uh, preventing a local community from passing a law under the, under the explanation that it would sort of contradict the state law. Um, I'm sure you're both already bored uh, of me just simply describing that. It is an incredibly dry topic. It is very, very procedural. Uh, but that being said, the fact that different state governments were doing this, they were passing bans on things like allowing a community to raise the minimum wage or to pass a smoking ban uh, outside of a, a school and, and things like that. So there were real policy consequences of this. Uh, and so the client came to us and they said, we want to understand how we talk to voters about how this is happening. Uh, and so we can convince them and persuade them that one, they should care about it. And, and two, that it, that it's a bad thing. Um, that was a tall order. We did a lot of focus groups on it and I have seen fewer, you know, more blank stares in those focus groups than I have in most when you ask people, well, what do you think about when a state government uh, intervenes on a law local government passes. I mean, people could not have cared less when framed that way. Uh, so we had to scrap what we were doing and try to reassess, okay, well, what are the values that people put on the role of local government? What do they like about it? What don't they like about it? What do they trust local governments to do? Um, and then also, what are their concerns about sort of government overreach and when and how that happens? And what we were able to kind of figure out is, Okay, the issue itself is dry, but at the end of the day, we have a couple of things going for us. First, people trust local government more than any other level of government. And so the idea that anyone would come in and try to swoop in and sort of cut them off at the knees already kind of started to rub people the wrong way, even though they didn't understand the issue. Uh, and then the other piece was, you know, so often people feel that at the, at the federal level and even at the state level, oftentimes, there's rampant influence of corporate special interests, of money in politics. And when we were able to sort of connect the dots for people, that this intervention wasn't just happening willy-nilly. It was happening because there was a role of special interests trying to influence policy at the local level. That combination really allowed us to actually get people to care and to get people to engage more on this issue. And so, you know, it was hard to sort of build that from scratch. And you go in having to sort of understand that you may have a list of questions you think people will want to answer and understand. But if they don't, you, you really have to kind of rebuild and let them tell you what really matters to them. So is it would an example of preemption be the North Carolina law regarding transgender and LGBT rights that just happened? Is that an example of that? 
absolutely. The bathroom component itself, uh, I, I don't believe would technically be considered preemption, but the minimum wage provision and then preventing the local communities uh, from passing their own non-discrimination protections, absolutely, that is a prime example uh, of preemption, which actually we learned in the research, we should stop calling it preemption because nobody knows what that means. Uh, <laughs> and I love we want to focus start... groups find these things. Like, yes, <laughs> preemption yes, exactly. is not catchy. Well, it seems <laughs> no. obvious, right? Like, like preemption, what is that? What does that even mean? But of course, these are the sorts of things that very smart policy folks or legal folks, you know, have come up with to describe it, this jargon, this terminology within their own communities. And so it's often our job as pollster to be the like translator to the outside world and to come back and say, no one knows what you're talking about. Right. This is exactly. means when your favorite TV show is off the air because there's some like newscast on <laughs> that people don't want to watch. Right. Um, so, you know, some people think about polling when it comes to issues as a dark, dark art that really you're trying to manipulate public opinion. You're trying to change what people think by using some kind of wordsmithing, for example, changing the word preemption to something else or, you know, state intervention, state yeah. intervention, right, <laughs> or death taxes or um, the, as opposed to the state tax or death panels, those kinds of things as ways of just changing what people think. Is that tell us about how you confront that perception and whether or not, you know, how do you how does that play a role to how you think about some of the work that you do? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually, I, I hear that a lot. Uh, I hear that probably more from family and people who want to know more about what I do, who sort of don't work in the field, uh, asking why, you know, I'm trying to push them into feeling one way or another. Uh, and my answer to that is I, I actually think that there's more accountability. I think polling and research on issues provides more accountability and, and sort of public input in the policies that impact them in life uh, than really any other way of going about it. Um, you know, I think, you know, how often are lawmakers, uh, particularly at the local level, but certainly, uh, you know, at the federal level, you know, able to actually engage regularly uh, with the public and understand their issues. Too often it's the, the sort of squeaky wheel constituencies uh, that I think gives sort of a, a biased point of view to lawmakers when they're soliciting public input. Uh, whereas polling allows us to go to the public that may not be, you know, picking up the phone to call their lawmaker and say, hey, we need to increase the minimum wage here or 725 doesn't go far enough. Uh, and so it is the polling that can sort of serve as a, a call out to the importance of passing different policies that matter to people. Um, and, and I also think that, that typically, you know, there's a misconception that polling creates a message or polling sort of uh, manufactures uh, a, a candidate's position or an organization's position on an issue when really, you know, candidates and, and campaigns and organizations, uh, nonprofit groups, they come to us because they know what it is they want to accomplish and our goal is to get them there. Our goal isn't to sort of create and manipulate them into a certain box as much as it is able to figure out what are the sort of points of connection that their issue has with the public and how they can talk about that issue so that the public realizes, you know, what, what, I, you know, this issue or policy does here actually really impacts me in a way that I care about. Um, I think that without, without polling, you know, on some of these important issues, I don't think in 2006 you would have seen so many states raise the minimum wage or have seen those go to the ballot in the first place. Um, I think without question, it's been 
polling and public opinion research on LGBT issues that have moved the, the sort of policies along uh, in such a quick and rapid way, because without them, you have people who are, are sort of sitting and, and unconnected to the public uh, trying to make these determinations. So for a while, I have been saying, I guess for about 10 years, that I was the youngest female pollster principal on the Democratic side. Now, that's, you know, there are a lot of qualifiers to that, but it was true for a while. I, it, I think pretty sure it is no longer true. Um, and you are, in fact, one of the youngest Democratic partners at a, at a polling firm, which is fantastic. So tell us a little bit about your views about being a young woman in the industry and how, what kind of advice you would give to other young women looking to go into polling. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I have to say, um, you you are someone that I sort of have have looked to as an example of, of a young woman sort of, you know, starting your own firm and, and doing work in this industry when there are, as you point out, so few women principals at, at Democratic polling firms. Uh, and and so I, I really just want to thank you for sort of being a, a trailblazer in that. But Oh, that's sweet of you to Margie. say. Well, you, you're <laughs> one of the partners at your at the Grove and Anzalone Grove or Anzalone List Grove was one of my her first managers when she was at the Melman Group many years ago, back in the days when I had to go to the internet room as people there was an internet room where you go and went to go check your email after I could, it was the years after I could smoke at my desk at roll call but when I was going to the internet room to send emails. So back in those days Lisa Grove was one of my earlier bosses. So she is yeah. a true trailblazer and Celine Lake who we're going to have on the show in a few weeks too. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so, so to that end, I mean, there are, there have been women and, and men in this industry who, uh, who have always been very encouraging to me. Uh, from the time I, I got involved in polling 10 years ago, uh, I have never, you know, felt like, particularly when I was starting out, never felt like there was a, a sort of gender difference in the rooms I was in, uh, and, and how seriously I was taken. Uh, for the for the work I did, I mean, certainly I've always worked hard and you know wanted to to sort of succeed. But gender was never sort of top of mind for me. Uh, but as I have you know sort of moved throughout my career, uh, the number of women in the sort of partnership or senior leadership role in polling firms, uh, it, it certainly does seem to shrink. And uh, and I'm not sure why that is, though. I, I will say at this point, I do a lot of informational interviews with young women on campaigns or young women who are wanting to get into uh, get into politics. And so often I hear from them that they're very interested in what I've done, uh, but that they don't think that polling is for them. And, you know, I think it comes down a little bit to the, the study that came out a few years ago that said women don't apply for jobs unless they feel they have 100% of the qualifications for the job. Whereas you have men who, if they feel like they check most boxes, they'll apply for the job. And I think that there's something to be said for, for women in polling on that. Um, polling isn't a background most people have until they have it. And so I think there are a lot of young women who feel, you know, that they don't necessarily have what it takes to be a pollster or the necessary background. And it holds them back. Uh, and so one thing I would say to women pursuing polling is, you know, is to explore it. It's, it's a fascinating industry. And, and, you know, if you are someone who cares about politics or advancing policies, polling is an excellent opportunity to do that. Um, there are certainly technical aspects of it. And, 
you know, those are very learnable as there are technical aspects in many jobs. Uh, and so I think that, you know, the, the industry is helped by having more women at the table. And I can't count how many times, and I'm sure both of you would, would speak to this as well, how many campaign retreats or how many client meetings I'll sit in where I'm one of, you know, only a few women and a room full of men. And so, you know, there certainly need to be more women pursuing this as a field. Uh, I do think that probably uh, there are more women now, you know, than when I, you know, than when I started and hopefully 10 years from now, that will be even more true. I remember there was this book uh, John Stewart put out about a decade, oh gosh, over a decade ago, America. It's like a textbook about American politics, mm-hmm, but it's mm-hmm. got that Daily Show vibe. And it has a chart of, um, a, you know, a campaign structure and like who should be in each job. And of course, it's really offensive and politically incorrect. But the pollster <laughs> is this big, sweaty guy with a mustache. And the description is just like... You tell you, everyone that your pollster does not exist, but you do not do anything without consulting the pollster. Always have bicarbonate of soda on hand for your pollster. Like he's this like sweaty guy with indigestion. And so, you know, the, yeah. the image, I'm like, okay, that's actually, that's not, you know, it doesn't make polling look like the soda no, industry. No. It's like, sign me up. That looks like a ton of fun. It's much um, it's much cooler now than it was back then. I right, guess. right. Well, and but I mean, to the gender point, too, you know, at first, sometimes people can be like, wow, Republican female pollster, like, you're you're kind of like a unicorn. But actually, that's not if I actually think about it, you've got Kellyanne Conway, you've got Linda Duvall, you've got Chris Matthews, you've got like, I can go through this list. I'm like, yep. wait a minute. There are actually a ton of women yep. who are running things on in Republican polling land. I mean, yeah. there are a lot – there are – you know, it's certainly more men than women. But actually, like sometimes I want to make the case, no, no, no. It's not like we're this, you know, small, special snowflake right. minority. There are actually a ton of women out there running polling firms on both sides of the it's aisle. It's the media consulting where women are underrepresented. So, Molly, how can people find <laughs> you and learn more about you and the work that you're doing and, and Anzalone List Grove? Uh, yep. So I, uh, you can reach me, uh, at our company Twitter handle. I am not really a, a tweeter myself, uh, at Anzalone List, A-N-Z-A-L-O-N-E-L-I-S-Z-T. Uh, and yep. And our company website is www.algpolling.com. Great. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate it, Molly. Thank you so much for having me. You've reached the Holiday Helpline. We turn the holidays into holidays. Hi, there's only 1,256 hours until Christmas, and we haven't even started our wish list yet. Get to Old Navy. Old Navy? Yep, Old Navy has everyone's favorite winter gear, like $5 tees, $10 thermals, $15 sweaters, and $20 outerwear. Time out. $5 tees? Yes, plus thousands of other styles start at 5 bucks too. Amazing cold-weather deals are already here at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. We're going to Old Navy. Turn your holiday into a holiday. Get to Old Navy today. Valid 1030 to 11.7. Select styles in-stores only.